Welcome to Men on Show, the podcast. Candid conversations with everyday heroes. Join Andrew Payne as he interviews fascinating guests, ordinary men doing extraordinary things. If you love the show and you think somebody could benefit from hearing it, why not tell them about it by giving it a share on social media? Oh, and at the end of the podcast, if you could leave us a five-star rating and a review, it really helps us more than you know, and it gets this important message out to more people that need to hear it the most. Right now, enjoy the next episode. Hi, welcome to Men on Show. My name is Andrew Payne and I'm delighted to have Keith Fraser with us today, Chair of Youth Justice Board for England and Wales. 30 years of policing experiencing, operating at senior level in some of the most complex organisations within the policing and criminal justice sectors, patron for Employability UK and a commissioner for the UK Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities ambassador for the Lads Like Us, a non-profit organisation, an expert on reducing violence and preventing gang involvement. The list goes on and I would be here a long time if I was to go through the whole list, reeling off the accolades and experience. So I'm so excited to have you on the show, Keith, and share your story. So welcome to the show, Keith. Andrew, thanks for having me and really, you know, just thankful for having me on. Cool. So just to sort of start off, Keith, um, what point in your life did you decide to go into policing? Was there something that particularly inspired you? It's very early on, actually. I was quite fortunate when I look back to get asked this question quite a bit. I was about eight or nine years of age. But looking back on what drove me to actually go, and I think it was my parents, the way that my parents worked. My parents were very selfless, very giving, did things for other people without necessarily looking for other things in return. My mother used to talk about some of her family that was in the police and she spoke quite proudly about that. So I think it's how my parents were and how they gave the community expecting nothing in return. Also how positively my mother spoke about the, the police officers that were in her family back in Jamaica. Gotten, was that sort of always in your blood? Was there a certain age where you really thought, yes, policing is for me? Or was it something where even when you were a younger boy, you knew that that's what you'd want to be? I suppose where I really kind of went for it was at the age of 14 when I wrote to the um, wrote to the Home Office and filled out an application form with all of my correct details on there and um, and fortunately some faceless civil servant wrote back to me with a personalised letter, loads of information. I'm so thankful to them because I then used the information they sent me back as a template for what I need to do. Um, through my schooling and also to preparing for my interview later on. Oh, that is just fantastic. Those, those small details and small acts can, can have such, a, such an impact. That's a, that's a brilliant story, actually. And in all that you've achieved with, within the sort of the 30 years, what, what are you most proud of having achieved and, and why? Good grief, Nora. <laughs> I don't know if I've got a, a kind of most proud moments. I think the fact I actually achieved my ambition of getting to the cops and I did um, 30 odd years, it was 32 years I, I did. I think getting through it and still being happy at the end when I left, I loved policing, uh, being proud of the proud of being part of policing. So I think doing the full 32 years and still you know being happy at the end of it all and you know, given the opportunity, I'll do it, do it all again. Obviously, there's a, you know, there are standout moments. Something there's, there's one in particular, 
Uh, and what what would you say your biggest frustrations have been in that time? I suppose in policing, the um, I suppose the, the biggest frustrations are the the, the, the the fact the pace of change, really, the amount of work that you're asked to do, and also just making sure that the, the public kind of understand the the, the pressures of, of policing, because quite often you're stuck between a, a rod and a and a hard place, a rock and a hard place, really. Because if you don't act, then you get said the police are too soft. If you do act, then the then the police are, are too too hard. And then it's the demands that are ch- placed on policing and the constant increasing com- in complexity. But I think that goes to the nature of the job. And I think that what policing needs to do is do more about explaining to the public about what what's involved in in policing. Yeah, and I suppose sort of with sort of social media, tabloid culture, we're quite encouraged, aren't we, today to sort of draw sort of very quick conclusions rather than sort of taking the time to look at the wider picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have noticed that with um, with social media, social media posts of various incidents that involve the police, and you know the the public quite often put up one. You know, the question would be why they post it, number two, what's the outcome that they're expecting? And number three, and I think probably the most important thing for me is that anybody that sees things on social media, all the posts of incidents involving police, just to really keep an open mind. And that's one about, because you don't know what's happened before the incident, you don't see everything that's involved during the incident of that post, and you don't see what happens afterwards. So it's not necessarily about being 100% in favour of the policing or 100% against. I would just ask that people keep a really open mind and a really challenging mind. And I hope that any posts that are on social media ask pe- makes people ask questions rather than um, come to conclusions, which are sometimes wrong. Sure. And, and the lads like us, t- tell me about that work, Keith. Yeah, lads like us. That's the um, I'm a patron for for them, and they're an amazing couple couple of guys. And they, I'm sure they won't mind me saying, they've gone through some trauma and challenges in their in their own lives, and they're now actually using their past experiences as younger younger men and children to challenge professionals in how they in how they respond to trauma and respond to the trauma that young people might be suffering and their big thing is around trying to promote professional curiosity because and not just taking things at face value not just responding to the behaviors that you see children and young people displaying but really trying to get behind what's actually driving that that trauma and they they're having a really i I think a really true really positive impact on a number of different parts of the um of the state if you want out there like from probation to social services to police to the voluntary sector to various parts of um, local authorities no that's, that's fascinating and really really good to hear and one thing i really wanted to ask you keith given uh, your experience and i know that you sort of do speaking around a sort of uh gang prevention um, your your work as patron of, of lads like us, your, your policing, all that background. You, we hear so much about toxic masculinity, gangs, young men out of control, 
antisocial behaviour, often where the, the people featured are, are, are young men. Do you think the problems are actually worse today than they were 30 years ago? It's a good question. If you look at overall, if you look at the overall thing, you'd see that violence is actually might not feel like it's actually on the on the on the decrease overall. But what you will see is a greater awareness and a greater understanding of of what's happening. So because of the you know because of the increased access that we that we have to publicity, now that increased understanding and increased spread of awareness can do two things. One it can help us work harder to prevent stuff but also it can it can also spread a bit of fear in people as well that things are are getting worse out there what what i hope it does is gets people to double down and try and prevent children and young people and particularly you know young men and young young women and girls and boys from being exploited by by criminal gangs for example or those who are involved in gangs yeah and what what does the term for you in terms of this term very sort of common modern buzzword toxic masculinity you know what does that mean to you if, if you had to define that good grief that's defined i'm not sure that i would um agree with that label is is one thing but what it might be talking about what it might be talking to it's the kind of group culture that you get amongst men, the kind of lads culture, whereby um, it might be seen as misogynistic, a little bit like having a drink um, at the weekends, you may be a little bit more aggressive, but these are the kind of stereotypes that, that come from that. And I'm not sure that's really helpful, terms like that. Yeah, I mean, my, my experience would suggest that, that the term itself is more of a wall builder than perhaps a, a bridge builder um, in terms of reaching the, the, the people we, we need to reach. Um, yeah, I, I like your description there. You said, was it um, lad culture or yeah, th th that even is, is a bit more specific and definite than just toxic masculinity, which we can just throw about to, to encompass a whole range of behaviours. Yeah, well, it can reinforce stereotypes around men, around around young men, and it does two things really. One, it can encourage men to stick to that that kind of culture that they're meant to be, that they're supposed to be part of, and reinforces stereotype that they're meant to be part of, reinforces ideal that they're meant to be part of, and also others cause others to to fear to fear men and i think that's that that is you know that's awful and neither of those outcomes are, are positive what we need to do is understand why men sometimes aren't as prepared and quite often aren't as prepared as others particularly women to talk about their feelings talk about what's going on for them in their lives talk about some of the challenges that they they may they may have no, that, no, really, really, really good, really insightful stuff there. And what would you say when we consider the statistics for men from suicide? We, we know that 75% of people who die by suicide are, are men. We know that there are falling levels of attainment within education. Um, in the UK, 57% of graduates are now female. 
Um, 43% now male. And we know that boys are three times more likely to be excluded than girls. So some of these stats make for quite grim reading. Why do you think these stats are so bad and how do we start addressing them? I think one, the first thing is around just raising awareness. How many people are aware of those statistics? Because if you're aware of those statistics, you'll start to look at it from a different perspective you'll hopefully start to say, okay, what is going on for men? What's going on for young boys? What is it that we need to do to put in place to support young boys and men earlier in their lives that encourages them to see the value of talking about their own feelings, about increasing their attainment and and academic ability in, in school, education, or in a trade? What is it about men that might say that they, that they tend to be less individualistic and wanting to be part of a group? You know, these, these are hopefully the questions that those stats that you've just quoted, which are people behind them, um, would, would generate. Yeah, and why do, you, why do you think they're as bad as they are? Do you think there's like, um, you know, with all these things, there's going to be a, a host of complex reasons, but are there any sort of standout reasons for you that we need to be mindful of in, in, in how we address these things? I think one of the big standout reasons, and it's one that's talked about a lot, you see more, more, more and more awareness of it, is just the fact that men do not talk about what's going on for them. They don't talk about, generally, don't as much as women talk about their, their health and their well-being. They're more likely to downplay what's going on for them, more likely, I feel from what I've seen, more likely to actually put up a front and hide their and hide their feelings. They're more likely to show, or less likely, shall I say, to show their show the vulnerability. And so as a result of having to maintain this facade, there's an awful lot of things that could be going on for men. That, um, that that's not that's not coming out and then as a result of that it gets to a level whereby individuals can't cope and they could take some extreme options of actually committing suicide unfortunately you know I've got a friend of mine who died in their early 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 20s young man successful but you know I don't know I'm not going to make any guesses around here but there were things that were probably going on for that individual that we didn't know about his family didn't know about his friends didn't know about what you know if that person had been prepared to speak to us felt able to talk to us could that life have been lost and i think that story can be told many times over unfortunately just a simple act of being prepared to talk about what's going on for you yeah, because certainly, um, I mean, some of the talking, some of the speaking work that I do around my experiences of domestic abuse in a former marriage, sometimes people say, well, how come you didn't talk about it? How, didn't, how come you didn't open up at work? You know, you, you go into work occasionally with sort of cuts, bruises on your face. And I worked with really nice people. We got on ever so well, but no one talked about vulnerability you always had your best bits on display it was all about targets profits all the things you're doing well at i wouldn't have dreamt of opening up but perhaps if someone else had taken the lead to be vulnerable and started to create more of a environment where vulnerability was normal acceptable safe then i might well have opened up 
Yeah, there's two things that, that come out of your come out of your of your question there. There's one about what happens to people who are going through domestic abuse, and I led on and worked with a lot of people around domestic abuse who were who were going through it whilst I was in the police. And a massive element of that is around is around control and and dominance. Therefore, the person that is going through that domestic abuse, they quite often do all that they can not to disclose what, what's what's going on, to keep it quiet. Sometimes they don't realise that they're in a vulnerable situation until they're actually writing something which is really, really deep and it's really hard for them to kind of find a way out of it. There might be all sorts of reasons why that person has control over the other person, not just physical control, it can be psychological control, it can be financial control. So it's not just as it's not a simple thing of just reaching out and asking for help, which leads on to your other piece there about the workplace. Is the workplace are there the right place, always the right place for you to be able to seek help? You think about how much of your time you spend in work, how much of the time you spend with colleagues. Is the environment the right place whereby people can ask for help when they when they need it? You know, myself as somebody who's slightly different to what you were talking about as dyslexic, it was a quite it was a difficult place for me to um, seek seek help. Although they tried to create an inclusive environment, an inclusive um, atmosphere, the response I got from my line manager when I spoke about my dyslexia in my mid forties wasn't it wasn't a great one. So I think employers heads of organisations, leaders in organisations need to really look at inclusivity and what does inclusivity mean and are they creating that kind of safe space, that safe atmosphere in the workplace. Sure, because I mean, and what you're referring to partly, I mean, there's that modern buzzword, isn't there, of psychological safety where leaders genuinely create an atmosphere where if you made a mistake and you could get away with it, you'd, you'd still open up to say that you'd made a mistake because you, you you are psychologically safe and that that's certainly become as i say a modern buzzword have you seen th- that term psychological safety much in the work that you're doing and and do you see that growing as sort of a, a trend as something that people want to create at work i see that growing as a, as a trend what you what you've spoken about there and it's more than just in a buzzword and i'm sure you don't mean it like that as well there's actually some real good evidence as to why you need to be, be creating a place where people feel safe. It's so that, one, people want to come and work for you, you can bring the right talent into your, into your workplace, and then three, people are more productive if, they are, if they're happier, and four, if people are happier in the workplace, you're, you're able to retain them. So there's a real human value on a moral level around creating a safe space, but there's also a business benefit as well for creating that safe space. Yeah, no, absolutely. And yes, completely just to uh, second what you said, yeah. For me, with modern buzzwords, there are some very silly modern buzzwords and there are some really sensible ones that are here to stay. And I definitely see psychological safety as one of those. And for anyone that wants to do more research on, on some of the evidence that you're referring to, I know Google launched a project called Project Aristotle, 
where they tried for years to get to the heart of what, what's that missing ingredient in the best performing teams. Can, can we define, is there an ingredient? And of course, after years of picking this apart, what, what they found was it was, was psychological safety was the key ingredient for, for their high-performing teams. Uh, uh, Keith, just sort of uh, lastly, sort of as we sort of come to the conclusion of this podcast, what would your message be today for young men if if you had a message to encourage our young men today what would that be it for me would be it's about taking action when i was in work and i was bullied and i know we haven't had a chance to speak about that this morning the thing that um, caused me the most harm was not taking any action so one is about being aware of what's going on for you the second thing was was once i found out I tried to conceal it and I thought it was something else that was going on and then tried to say that it was a personality clash. And then finally, it's the T in ACT, which is about taking action. So it's being aware of yourself as a person. And then two, the C is not, is not concealing what's, go, what's going on or trying to cover it up with yourself. And then number three is about taking action. So it really is a strong message there to act now. Sure, that's a really, really powerful message, Keith. And a thank you, and a good one, good one to conclude on. And Keith, for people to find out more about you, I know that you're you're a speaker yourself. How's the best way for people? You know, what's the best way for people to get in contact with you? The best way for people to get hold of me is via LinkedIn by my name and also I'm also on Twitter as well I'm I'm responsive I'm up for a chat with um, with people and see where the conversation goes fantastic so that, that's Keith Fraser on LinkedIn um, Fraser F-R-A-S-E-R and obviously your bit what's your Twitter handle Keith it's Keith Fraser 2017 brilliant well look Keith Thank you so much for sharing some of your story and insights and thoughts there on today's show. I hugely, hugely appreciate it and wish you the, the, the very best uh, for, the, for the rest of the year. Andrew, thank you. And it's a really important topic that you're exploring here. So I do wish you all the best in relation to raising awareness around this. Thanks, Keith. Thank you for listening to Andrew Payne's Men On Show. If you could leave us a five-star rating and short review, it would be really, really appreciated. It helps us get this important message out to more people that need to hear it the most. See you on the next episode. Thank you for tuning in. Hold up. 